All right, and we are rolling once again. We are exploring faith and pursuing grace. I am Lee Grant, and joining me once again is my inimitable, inestimable partner in crime and fellow cohort, Brother Kevin Pendergrass. He is back. Kevin, we have all missed you greatly. I have missed you. I know our audience has missed you as well. Welcome back to the podcast, brother. It is good to have you back, man. Man, it is good to be back. Yes, we missed you tremendously. And because you have been gone for a while, we have a special plan for this episode. We are doing what the Avengers did. We are traveling back in time. But instead of 2014 Thanos playing a, a part in this and coming through the time warp, we are going back to 2012, and we are joined by a very special guest today. We are joined by Brother Kevin Pendergrass from 2012. Isn't that just kind of wild? I need to find Twilight Zone music to play <laughs> over this part of the podcast. Now. Oh, from the past, man. A blast from, from the, the past. past. Yeah, whenever, dude, whenever you first approached me about doing this episode and you said, man, I've got an idea. Let's talk about instrumental music, but let's debate in a way me from 2012. And I thought, wow, that's a really good idea. So what we're going to be doing in this episode is we're going to be taking a debate that you participated in, a formal debate on whether or not using instrumental music in worship is sinful that you had with Jason Weatherly. And that debate was one of the uh, keystone moments or touchstone moments, I should say, that led you to begin reevaluating instrumental music in and of itself. And it, at that point in time, you changed your position on instrumental music, even though you still approach the Bible in, in very much a, a law system manner. Yeah, just to give a quick overview before we jump into the, the audio of, of 2012 in that debate. This was something that I had spent about nine months preparing for when I had this debate. And of course, I was raised in the churches of Christ. So I, I always believed that it was wrong to use mechanical instruments in worship. But when you have to actually debate somebody and get out of the four walls of your own congregation or people who you know already agree with you, it becomes a lot more of a serious task to prepare because you know that the person you're going to uh, be talking with completely disagrees with you. And the way that I view debating at that point, it was a lot more of a, you know, a very aggressive. I was very aggressive. You'll hear that in the audio. Uh, although I will say in this debate, I don't think I was as bad <laughs> as, as I was in some of the, uh, some of my earlier debates that I had prior to this, because this was actually my last formal debate that I've ever, that I, that I had. And uh, so you'll see that I was pretty aggressive, but not as aggressive as some of my debates prior to that. But th this is something that I really spent a lot of time preparing for. And I, I studied with a lot of ministers in the Churches of Christ for this debate, prepared for this debate, uh, researched with a lot of uh, you know Bible scholars, at least within the Churches of Christ. And, uh, you know, just, just had all sorts of help grammatically with individuals and getting into the Greek and Hebrew and the Septuagint and just studying the languages and all of those types of things. And so this is something I sincerely believe. And I think that the debate you're about to listen to or the audio from that's going to show that there's no question that this is something I sincerely bought into. And I think it's, it's going to be interesting and it's going to be a fun experience, but hopefully an educational one for people to see that. The reasons I changed, this wasn't just something that happened overnight. It wasn't like I had this debate and then after the debate, I thought, oh, wow, I need to change. I'm wrong. I still very much thought I was right after the debate was over with. And pride tends to do that for everybody in a debate. You know, you, you, yeah. very, you very rarely hear anyone admit defeat after they debated a topic, at least right after they debated a topic. <laughs> so this yeah. is this is something that it, it, about two years after this debate is when I... I guess you can say officially came out and, and said, I now have changed my position on this because there were some things said within the debate that caused me to question my position, but it wasn't until a couple of years later after I had plenty of time to thoroughly study that I, that I changed. And so one of the points you made that I want to emphasize throughout this discussion is that I now read the Bible completely different than... I read when I was in, you know, in 2012 or even 2015 or even 2016 for that matter. So while there are things today that I would say if I was addressing this topic, 
I'm not going to do that as much because I, I changed my position on instrumental music still within a very much legalistic ideology of, of an approach to scripture. I, I still believed in the command example and necessary inference. And even within that framework, I still changed my position. And so I want to give an explanation as to why I changed my position, even within that framework, much less once I left that framework. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the biggest thing that we need to, to make clear at the very top of this. A lot of the rationale that we're going to be going through and that you're going to be enumerating as we as this episode unfolds is still very much based on that old school law-based law system thinking that still permeated your mindset at that point in time, at that point on your journey. And it's not necessarily going to be representative or reflective of where you are now in your journey. So we want to make sure that our audience understands that this is 2012 Kevin who believe that if you use an instrument in in worship, a mechanical musical instrument in worship, that you were putting your soul in jeopardy. And if you did so in a congregational sense, that you were lost against maybe 2014 or 2015, Kevin, who still approached the Bible in that same way, but whose conclusions changed. This is not necessarily, a lot of these remarks aren't necessarily going to be reflective of where Kevin is now. And it may not even be reflective of where I am now on this, but where it's appropriate and without getting too deep into the weeds or without making this episode go too long, we'll provide some commentary to that end if we feel it's necessary. But in the meantime, yeah. dude, this is going to be fun. Well, I, oh, no, go I, ahead, man. Well, I was just going to interject and say, I'll try to give a, an explanation of why I originally changed and then just maybe a quick remark of where I'm at now. Um, Cause clearly I have no problem with instrumental music. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm just in a diff, completely different level on how I approach scripture now back then. So I, I want to make sure people listening to this, if they still come from that background of, oh, you have to have a book, chapter, and verse for everything you do, and you have to have authority for everything you do, and they mean by that you have to have a New Testament example or command or necessary inference, then I'm going to be talking to you tonight. Uh, I'm gonna I'm I hope hopefully I'm going to be able to reach that crowd as well. I don't want to just say, oh, well, I don't re I read the Bible differently now, so none of this matters. Um, that's not what I'm going to do. I, I want to really try to engage this information even within that th or through that filter. But then I'll also say I no longer believe that filter. But even if I did, here is why I believe this argument is not a good argument within that system of thought in the first place. Fantastic. Well, with that being said, we'll go ahead and dive right into it. And I'm also going to take this very brief moment to ask our listeners to express some patience with us. We are utilizing our technology in a way that I am kind of unfamiliar with getting the audio to play directly from the uh, computer through the interface that we use to record this podcast was an incredible challenge. So we're just trying an old school way to make this work. We're going to try to clean it up in post. So if there's some stutter steps and some false starts along the way, we ask that you guys be patient with us because we're very much trying to figure this out as we, as we kind of work through it, as far as the technical side of it goes. So if you're ready, brother, we'll go ahead and get started. Let's do it. All right. The grand showdown, Kevin versus Kevin on instrumental music, on exploring faith and pursuing grace. In the red corner. Okay, that's enough of that nonsense. All right, we're going to go ahead and start. This that you're about to hear is audio from this debate. This is Kevin Pendergrass from 2012 making his first statement. And I'll have you go ahead, brother, and signal me either audibly or visibly whenever you're ready to stop and uh, reply. So here good. we go. And let's get into the proposition. And as I read this proposition, I will also define the terms. And you'll notice it is on the PowerPoint. The scriptures teach, that is the Bible, the word of God, that vocal music, that is words relating to, composed or arranged for, are sung by the human voice in the Christian age, that is the dispensation from the time of Acts chapter 2 until the Lord's return, is the only authorized type of music, that is the only type that God deems as acceptable, the only type that He approves of in Christian worship. That is our worship to God as Christians as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, to prove this proposition, my first argument is up on the screen, and as I read this, I will also, after I read it, prove each component, thus validating the conclusion. 
Here's the argument. If we must prove all things, and if we live under the new covenant, and if we cannot use old covenant practices to justify new covenant practices, and if God has always regulated the type of music in worship to him, and if God has regulated only vocal music in new covenant worship, then vocal music is the only type of music authorized under new covenant worship. Now let's break this down and prove it tonight. The Bible teaches, number one, we must prove all things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10 says, Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the Bible says, Prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we cannot prove it, then we cannot do it according to the Word of God. Let's go ahead and stop it there, Lee. And we'll just make a brief comment right here. What I'm doing is I'm creating a framework of how I believe we should approach the Bible. And in essence, the presuppositional framework that I'm using and that I'm assuming is that the Bible should be viewed as some sort of Christian constitution of sorts. And and therefore, we have to get approval from the Bible. And since I now am coming from a completely different place in how I approach the Scripture, there's a lot we could talk about here in regard to just how much my approach to the Bible has changed. But in essence, I don't necessarily have any problem with, with this comment that we must prove all things. I know where I'm coming from in 2012, and I, I meant something much more different back then when I said that we have to prove all things than I would mean by that today. But we'll just go with that. And yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot of problem with that. I would say that ultimately, I still believe we have to prove all things and we have to go to the Bible in order to do so. And we'll continue to unpack that here as the, uh, the speech unfolds. Well, I'll just say that's a lot of ifs in that proposition, man. That's a lot of ifs. Well, so I always debated with syllogisms, and I, I, that was I'm just a very systematic thinker, and I love the syllogisms. And so what I'm going to be doing is breaking down each one of those ifs. And as you'll notice as we go throughout this conversation, I actually agree predominantly still with almost all of those uh, components in my argument except the last one. And so it's, it's very interesting to see how a syllogism can look really good and I can look back and still agree with most of it, but if just one of the components within that syllogism is wrong, the whole argument falls apart. Yep, that's one of the things you learn about in logic. Well, we'll go ahead and move on and hear what 2012 Kevin had to say. So, so yeah, so so in essence, do I believe we must prove all things? Sure, I, I'm not going to take issue with that. Fantastic. All right, moving along. According to the Word of God. So component number one, the Bible teaches we must prove all things. Component number two, we live under the new covenants. The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews, the book of Galatians, Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, all through it that we live under the new covenant law. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 12, the Bible says, For the priesthood being change of necessity, there is also a change of law. See, when the priesthood changed, the Bible teaches, so did the whole law system. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9, the Bible says that he takes away the first that he may establish the second. See, Christ has taken the first covenant out of the way and he has established the second. And that is the covenant that the Bible teaches that we live under. So, new covenant. We live under that new covenant. What's your response to that? Yeah, I, I, once again, I'm not going to take much issue with, with myself uh, back in 2012. I look back and I know what I meant by that is that I believe that Christ just took one legal system and replaced it with a not only another legal system, but even a more difficult legal system. And of course, I no longer believe that way in that specific wording. But yeah, I, I'm not going to take much issue with that. I, I don't have any problem saying that I believe that we live under the new covenant. The old covenant has been taken away. That as Christians, we're amenable to the new covenant. So a lot more I could say on that. A lot of uh, I could I could take a lot of threads within that and pull on it. But for the sake of this discussion, yeah, I'll go ahead and give that to Kevin. Twenty twelve. Yeah, we live under the new covenant, and, and that's what we have to go by. Well, likewise, no disagreement here. So let's see what twenty twelve Kevin has to follow up with next. Maybe. <laughs> under component number three. 
The Bible teaches that we cannot use old covenant practices to justify new covenant practices. What does that mean? Well, I can't go to the Old Testament and say, well, they allowed uh, stoning under the Old Covenant. You're allowed to stone your children if they misbehaved or stone this, the disobedient. Therefore, uh, today, I'm going to go to the Old Testament and say, well, they did it in the Old Testament. So therefore, we must be authorized. It doesn't work that way because we cannot use Old Covenant practices to justify New Covenant practices. The Bible says in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. The Bible teaches that the old law, it is a dead law. It is a law that we are not under. Romans chapter 3, verse 19, We are amenable only to the law that has been given to us. We live under the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. The Bible teaches in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, if we attempt to be justified by the Old Covenant, then we have fallen from grace. Now, the good thing tonight is Mr. Weatherly agrees with this. So at that point, I would say I don't necessarily disagree with 2012 Kevin really all that much, even at this point. You know, the idea of not going back to the Old Testament to justify stoning or this or that or, or whatever else. That is, uh, in and of itself, that's really not a bad argument to make, but I'm not sure that the implications, well, at least I can say even now, those implications just don't really seem to work for me all that much. What, what's your reply to that? Yeah, this this is a pretty convoluted statement, and I, I didn't mean for it to be convoluted in 2012, but the more that I have reflected back on it, we cannot use old covenant practices to justify new covenant practices. It sounds like a pretty solid statement. And as you noticed, I talked about uh, the passage where it speaks of stoning your children if they dishonor their, their, their parents. And most people would look at that example and go, well, no, of course we can't go to the Old Testament to justify stoning our children, even though some people may want to do that from time to time. Every um, parent has wanted to do that from time <laughs> to time. The, uh, I would say, though, the problem with that is it's somewhat of an overstatement to say that we cannot use Old Covenant practices to justify New Covenant practices. And, and here's why, because there, there are certainly times when Paul did use the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to justify or incorporate practices within the New Covenant times. Uh, for example, you see that Paul had Timothy circumcised, and Paul told the Christians in Rome that they could continue to participate in these Jewish festivals and holidays, assuming that they didn't bind them on others. And so this really isn't a hard, fast rule. There are times when we can't use the Old Covenant to justify New Covenant practices, but then there are also examples of the New Testament where we see Paul doing just that. Now, I would have said back then to the examples I just gave that they don't count because that was a transitional period. And I used to use that phrase a lot when trying to dismiss or minimize something I didn't like in the New Testament. <laughs> I would say, oh, well, it's a transitional period. And so, you know, back then it, it was OK to, uh, you know, to, to allow the Jews to continue to participate in their Jewish uh, holidays. But today, if someone was a Messianic Jew, it wouldn't be authorized for them to do that. And I just don't think that's a very fair argument to, to write it off as saying it was a transitional period. Well, um, it's special pleading. It's, it's absolutely special pleading because you're making a case and your case is predicated upon, let's just call it point A, but then you see exceptions to point A over and over again. And so you plead that that's a special case. It's absolutely yeah. special pleading. Well, yeah. And, and I also asked this question to myself when I was studying, is that when did it start becoming wrong to be circumcised or to celebrate Jewish holidays? Because the New Testament certainly does not condemn these practices and it uses the Old Testament as its authority and its basis for being able to do so. And furthermore, by that logic, the whole New Testament is a transitional period. So if, if my argument's correct, then I would have to say that it didn't matter if I could find a hundred examples or a thousand examples in the New Testament. I could always minimize or dismiss them based upon that argument of, oh, well, that's a transitional period. And I just don't think that's a very fair argument to do so. Something else to think about here is that 
I quoted Galatians chapter five, verse four, about how if we try to be justified by the law, we, we will fall from grace and that we, we can't be justified by the law. Within the context of the book of Galatians, Paul is not saying that it's wrong to participate in some of these Old Testament practices. The issue is that these Christians in the churches of Galatia were actually binding these practices, or at least there were some Judaizing teachers who were coming in there binding these practices and saying you have to be circumcised to be saved. Because Paul even says in Galatians 5, 5, and, and just continuing on in that chapter, that there's nothing wrong with circumcision. If you want to be circumcised, that's fine. If you want to be circumcised because of your Jewish roots, that's fine. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But don't bind that on someone else. And I think we see that distinction being made as well when Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome versus when he's writing to the Christians in Galatia. Because in Galatia, he says, do not celebrate these holidays, not because they're wrong to celebrate, but because you are binding them on others. Whereas in Rome, he told the churches, well, it's perfectly acceptable for you to participate in these because you're not binding them. And so for, for me to use Galatians 5.4 is completely unfair because that's not what the text is talking about. They, they weren't trying to say, well, the old law says this, therefore we're authorized to do X, Y, Z. That's, that, that's not the argument that they were making. They were saying, well, we're still going to follow the old law because we believe you have to keep the old law in order to be saved. That's what Paul was was talking about. That's what Paul was teaching against. And so I do think that this is an overstatement in my argument. As, as you pointed out, I would, I would be probably where you're at on this. I don't think that the statement itself is 100% false, but it's not 100% true either because there are some situations where it would be wrong to use old covenant practices to justify new covenant practices. But there are also times where we see Paul doing just that. And so it's it would be hard for for me to make that a a rule with with no exceptions and even a rule for that matter. I think sometimes situationally it's the case and other times situationally it's not the case and we have to look at different factors. But I'm going to say this after saying all of that uh, and I'm probably going to repeat this at ad nauseum, I'm still going to concede this point for the sake of this discussion. Okay? And and I hope people who are listening to this understand so far for the sake of this discussion, with the reasons why I changed, I don't disagree with anything I've said up until this point as far as the actual statements made. I, I would so far agree with all of the components. I would say that we, I believe we have to prove all things. I would say that we live under the new covenant, and therefore that's what we're amenable to. And I would even go as far for the sake of this argument and this discussion that we cannot use old covenant practices to justify new covenant practices. And the only reason I'm going to give that argument to Kevin 2012 is because uh, that's not what changed my mind. Uh, I, I Even with all of these components, I still changed my mind. And so I'm going to explain why here in just a moment. But does that make sense? Am I making sense, Lee? I think it makes sense. And I think that it does it kind of unwinding and unraveling some of that convoluted framework, because like you said, there, there is a measure of convolutedness to it. It, it. Whenever you unravel that, that in and of itself can become sort of convoluted in a way, but it seems to be what you're saying is, is that we do go by the new Testament for our authority, but to pit, you know, Galatians against Romans, so to speak, and that, that may be even putting it too harshly, but to take what Paul says in Galatians and that point that you made and to say that that is, you know, something in, in which, you know, we fall from grace whenever we try to justify, you know, a new practice under the uh, law of the old covenant or, or whatever else, it ignores the particular situation that Paul was writing to address whenever he penned Galatians. And that's one of the things that, that you and I have talked about some before, either in private. And I think we may have even got into this on the on the podcast, too, that so much of what we see in Scripture and what we see reflected in in the Pauline epistles, it's it's situational. He's addressing specific situational issues that are going on in that particular region at that particular time. And then we have taken those situational ethics, if we want to use that term, and we've globalized it. Yeah, well, I'm trying to make these statements one size fits all, and that's that's just not the case. But for the sake of the debate 
this little mock fun debate we're having. I'll say, yeah, I'll go ahead and give that to Kevin 2012. So, so far, in essence, I don't, I, I would say I'm not going to disagree uh, with anything I've said up until this point for the sake of our, our discussion here. Very cool. Well, let's go on and see what 2012U has to say next. And on a conversation between a mutual friend on Facebook, Mr. Weatherly said the following. He said, I believe the Old Testament was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Now, once the faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. The New Testament is the foundation of our faith. Once we find the foundation in the New Testament, we can find examples in the Old Testament, but the source, New Testament doctrine, is a New Testament. Well, John the Whitehead, our mutual friend, that wasn't good enough. He said, Mr. Welly, I want you to clarify, sir. So he said, I agree, Mr. Weather, that we can learn from the Old Testament examples. But what I'm asking you is if we can establish for our New Testament practices based solely on the Old Testament. Would you agree? Now, notice this question. Would you agree that if the New Testament does not teach a particular practice, an explicit statement, approved example, or necessary implications, then we cannot appeal to the Old Testament for its justification? That's the question. What was Mr. Welly's answer? Folks, not 100% did Mr. Weatherly agree. He agrees 110%. What do you agree 110% to, Mr. Weatherly? Mr. Weatherly says if the New Testament does not teach a particular practice and explicit statement, proved example or necessary implications, then we cannot appeal to the Old Testament for its justification. So, Mr. Weatherly, I too agree 110% tonight because that's exactly what the Bible teaches, folks. Component number four. Ah. Before we get into component number four, let's address command, example, and necessary inference or necessary implication as it's stated there. The difference for our audience between an implication and an inference, if I say something and you read into what I'm saying, what I say is what I imply and what you read into what I'm saying is what you infer from what I imply. So that's the difference between an implication and an inference. But this is where I imagine we're going to begin diverging from uh, 2012, Kevin, pretty strongly. Would that be fair? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I don't actually want to address that because I still want to assume that this is true at this time because I still changed my position under the the framework of believing that we have to have a command example of necessary inference. And so I actually changed and believed mechanical instruments uh, were authorized in worship under the the belief system of a command example necessary inference and a lot of people may find that interesting and so i really want to stick to that because clearly i 100% now or as i said in the debate 110% now i would disagree <laughs> and uh and say that i i do not believe that's how we should approach scripture and lee and i've already done a whole episode on this episode 38, how to read the Bible, the regulative principle. So I would encourage people to check that out if you want to see why we both reject that idea. Um, but I believed that within the command example and necessary inference model for understanding Bible authority, musical instruments in worship were authorized and uh, ended up changing my position like I said, about two years after the debate. And so I want to explain why, even with under the model, the hermeneutic command example necessary inference, I still believe instrumental music is authorized because so many people, they're going to, they're going to have to see that they were wrong on one or two positions before they're willing to tr change their whole framework of how they read the Bible. And yeah. so I, I, I want to be careful to rush in and say, okay, because I want to say this, it's a lot easier to prove that instrumental music is okay when you when you uh, understand a different hermeneutic. So, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. it, it's it's a lot easier to explain it that way. But what I want to keep emphasizing over and over and over is, I changed my position even within that hermeneutic. I believed that uh, that that mechanical instruments is were authorized or are authorized. And so that's really what I want to focus on to let people know why I changed even within that hermeneutic. And it was within that hermeneutic, once I started changing on this issue and the Lord's Supper and a few other issues, that is what, what made me question, maybe I'm just reading the Bible in a way that has led to all these faulty conclusions of my past. And maybe I need to start understanding and relating to the Bible differently. And that eventually led to that, which has just been a transition over the past two years, really. 
Well, and that's really what we get into with this next component, with component number four, as 2012 Kevin was starting to say before we cut him off, because that's really what he's about to get into, or I should say what you are about to get into, is really the the meat and potatoes that are on that framework. Because at this point, 2012 Kevin is pretty well just establishing what, what every... I'd, I don't want to say every, what the majority of conservative leaning or strongly conservative um, Church of Christ Bible students do. And that's first, we must establish authority, biblical authority and where Bible authority comes from. So that is what 2012 Kevin has done so far in this debate is to establish that particular framework and then the specific points as they relate to instrumental music are about to be made within that framework. So that's what's going to happen next. Are you ready to move on? I'm ready, man. All right. So component number four, here we go. So Mr. Whaley, I too agree 110% tonight because that's exactly what the Bible teaches, folks. Component number four. The Bible teaches that God has always regulated the type of music in worship to him. So you know, the old covenant, they had mechanical instruments. They used mechanical instruments in old covenant worship. You know why? Well, because God put them there. See, mechanical instruments accompanied animal sacrifices and were a part of the old law system. They were associated with the Levitical order. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25. Read along with me here up on the screen or follow along with me. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with string instruments, and with harps. According to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for thus was the commandment of the who? For thus was the commandment of who? The Lord by his prophet. You see, you go to the old covenant and they used them. Mr. Welles already brought up in his question, Exodus 15, man, the prophetess were using mechanical instruments. Folks, God authorized these things under the old covenant. And not only authorized, he commanded them. See, the reason why they used mechanical instruments on the old covenant is because God established their use and regulated their use under the old covenants. In fact, what this shows us is that when God approved of mechanical instruments in worship, certain elements were present. There were clear passages showing the approval of such. Mechanical instruments were mentioned a plurality of times in the context of Old Testament worship. And God specified which mechanical instruments were to be used. You see, what this shows us is that if God wanted mechanical instruments in New Testament worship, then guess what? we would know exactly what it would look like and how he would have established it there. In fact, God has never approved of mechanical instruments in worship to him that he did not authorize. Now that is really, really similar to a point that I made whenever I preached against instrumental music being used in worship. I would go back to the Old Testament just like you did in 2012 but I would say whenever we take that and everything God had to say in the Old Testament and we compare it to what is said about them in the New Testament, the silence of the New Testament is deafening. That's the statement. I would, and I would make that emphasis on deafening and would really, you know, make that point and pause and drive it home. So that's an argument that I think is fairly common within the churches of Christ, because it's an argument that I had heard before I ever even met you. Yeah, so this this argument that I used, and I'll just say it again, the, the component number four was that God has always regulated the type of music in worship to him. And this argument, specifically the argument that in the Old Testament, the only authorized instruments were those that God divinely sanctioned, and the only ones who could use those instruments were those who God divinely authorized, which specifically the argument usually goes is the tribe of Levi. And uh, this argument has always been used among members of the Churches of Christ to some extent, but it really became popular in the Churches of Christ and resurfaced uh, in 2005 Again, when John Price, who is a Baptist minister, wrote a book entitled Old Light on New Worship, and he meticulously goes through the Old Testament. Uh, I pulled from a lot of his source material when I was participating in this debate, and, uh, and he goes through, he's very meticulous, very specific on this, and he, he, he builds up this argument that God was always very careful about worship to him, in particular with instrumental music. 
And um, I'm going to explain that there's parts of this argument I still believe, but then there's also parts of this argument that I believe are, are just simply untrue. I believe they are demonstrably false. And uh, I'll get into that right now. And so I want to begin by saying this. I do believe that the part of this argument that's correct is that instrumental music in worship was something that was approved in the of in the Old Testament. We see that from Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25, that the text says this is something from God and there's no reason to believe otherwise. Now, in trying to remove instrumental praise from God's approval completely, in the Bible. Some have actually tried to go to Amos 6, where God, through Amos, is giving a pronouncement of woes against the Jews. Now, I will say that when I was studying in preparation for my debate in 2012, or prior to 2012, as I was preparing, I ran up a, a lot. I ran up against this argument a lot of people who just tried to get the idea of instrumental music just completely out of the Bible, saying God never approved of instrumental music. God never liked it. And uh, and this is the reason why. They go to Amos chapter 6 here, where God's given these pronouncements. He's, he's woe, to, woe to them who do this, woe to them who do that. In verse 5, this is the verse that people tend to cherry pick. It says, woe to them who sing idly to the sound of string instruments. And this part in particular is what people focus on, and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David. So the argument that sometimes people use is they said, well, God never liked instrumental music. David was wrong for, for creating and inventing instrumental music, and God through Amos is making that pronouncement here. Now, the problem with that argument, and, and there's at least two problems with this argument, is first of all, there are several passages that say that it was God who commanded David to employ instrumental music to worship him and that David was acting with God's approval. We see that in 2 Chronicles 7, 6, Nehemiah 12, 36, and of course, as we just saw, 2 Chronicles 29, 26, and 27. So that, that's one reason why I think that you there, there's no way that we can conclude that David was wrong for using instrumental music because we see that this is something that that God was commanding him to do. Now, also, the context of the passage itself helps us to understand what's going on here in Amos. Very few people who quote Amos 6 here um, in an attempt to condemn instrumental music rarely know the surrounding context. And, and I say that just from my experience, because when I started talking to people who believed that instrumental music was even condemned in the Old Testament, I would ask them why, and they would quote Amos 6. And I said, well, what's the context of that passage? And usually I would get crickets or blank stares, and they really just didn't know. So if you continue reading, not just that verse and, and forward, but even if you back up, there's a lot of woes that are being pronounced against Israel at this point. So aside from instrumental music, this text pronounces woes against beds of ivory, couches, eating lambs and eating calves, singing, singing, <laughs> I just want to point that out, <laughs> drinking wine from bowls and anointing themselves with oils. So if someone wants to argue that instrumental music is condemned in this text, then all of these would also be condemned too, including singing, including anointing yourself. All of these things would be condemned under this, this same pronouncement of woes. Uh, most Bible scholars don't even think this is talking about using instruments to worship God or singing songs to worship God in the first place. Rather, it's teaching that the same instruments which David made and employed to honor and worship God were now being used, invented, or repurposed for their own secular pleasure. So when looking at the context, we will see that the, the woes pronounced in this passage are not against the items or actions in and of themselves. Uh, what is condemned in this text is Israel's motives and their lackadaisical attitude and trust in these items and actions. And so as far as the argument that mechanical instruments were used, authorized, and even commanded in the Old Testament, I wholeheartedly believe that. I believe that's a sound argument. I believe it is... It can be validated over and over again, and that those who want to say that old, uh, the Old Testament never even allowed instruments in their worship, I believe that that's just a special pleading. I believe that that shows a presuppositional bias in trying to just exonerate instrumental music and just get it out of there, and uh, or, or that whole idea to begin with. And so, I, I, is there anything you want to say on that? Well, I, I've. 
I it's interesting though because I had heard in a sermon that that a preacher had given a very 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 conservative preacher had given in referencing Amos 6 and he pretty much just broke it down in the same way you did that this is not a wholesale condemnation of instrumental music that this is um Amos basically condemning or, or the Holy Spirit through Amos condemning the attitudes that people had regarding these instruments their heart wasn't in it they were they were taking these instruments and they were using them in a in a sinful way by either not putting their hearts into the worship at all and just going through the motions or they were using these instruments that were authorized and holy because this gets into a into another point you made in this debate as well that these are instruments that God authorized specifically for worship and they were being used inappropriately. They weren't being used in worship anymore. They were being used in a method unauthorized by God, which is still very much in keeping with that legalistic milieu that, that we come from and that is inherent within our heritage on this point. Yeah, and, and most of, at least most of the the... Christians that I surrounded myself with when I believed this, that instrumental music was sinful, most most of us just thought it was ridiculous to try to use Amos 6 to condemn instrumental music under the Old Covenant. Um, so most people within a, a, I'm not saying this derogatory, but in that legalistic system, they're going to agree with everything I just said and, and Lee, what you just said on Amos 6. They're not going to have any problem. They're going to say, well, yeah, Amos 6 isn't condemning instrumental music. Of course, it was part of the Old Testament law system. And so uh, there's very few people who make that argument. I didn't make the argument in the debate. The only reason why I brought that up is because there are a handful of people who still will argue that... Um, you know, instrumental music was never part of even old covenant worship. And they primarily do that because of Adam Clark. He believed that. And so if you ever read Adam Clark's commentary on Amos, that's what he's going to tell you. And a lot of people, that's a very popular commentary. And so they just listen to what one person has to say and they say, okay, well, that must be the case. And, um, and, and we'll get into this in probably the next episode, Adam Clark, uh, he was, he was adamant against instrumental music and worship, but Anyway, I don't want to veer off too much, but the point is, is that I believed then and I believe now, and I've always believed this, that instrumental music was always uh, something that was in the Old Testament and approved by God. It wasn't something that was just overlooked by God. It wasn't just a human weakness. It was something that was established as part of the Old Covenant worship system. So I believe that in 2012. I believe that when I changed in 2014-15, and I believe that here in 2021. Now, here is where I now disagree with part of this argument. So in the debate, I claim that the only instrumental music that God approved of under the Old Testament was that which He specifically authorized. And the way that I went about proving that is by saying, well, we know it was authorized um, because we see it being used. <laughs> Thus, God must have approved it. This is a circular argument. This is circular reasoning because there are many examples where you see people using instrumental music and there's no explicit verse that would, uh, that, that would grant them authority in the way that I believe authority at that point had to be granted. You just see these different individuals using mechanical instruments. And so I made the circular reasoning, well, of course, that they were using instrumental music. They were authorized to use instrumental music. Well, how do you know they were authorized to use instrumental music, Kevin? Well, because they were using it and, and, and it was approved <laughs> by God. Therefore, it must have been authorized and God somewhere, perhaps by divine revelation that we didn't know about, specifically authorized their use. So, so I pretty much am using the same argument that John Price uses in his book, Old Light on New Worship. But here is, here's where I'm going to push back and completely disagree with my conclusion in 2012 as, where, as well as John Price's conclusion. There are times in the Bible where you see God being very specific about which, which instruments to use. You know, it talks about specific trumpets and how they're to make those trumpets and what material and metals they're to be made out of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as we've already seen, it wasn't just the Levites who were authorized, quote unquote, or who we see using instrumental music to worship God. We've already seen David who used instruments to worship and praise God, and he was from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. 
So here's how most people get around this. They say, well, David was the exception to the rule. Or they'll say, well, it's okay to use instrumental music in private worship to God, not public worship to God. But once again, there's a problem with this because we see in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 5, the text says that then David and all the house of Israel, this was a public assembly, prayed, or excuse me, played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of firwood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, etc., on all kinds of instruments. So when we try to build up this hermeneutic that says, well, every time we see an instrument, it's accounted for. Every time we see somebody who, who, who plays a mechanical instrument, it's somewhere accounted for in Scripture. And then we come to 2 Samuel 6, 5, and that just blows that argument all to shreds because it says, man, there were all sorts of instruments. There were everybody in the house of Israel. They were playing music and worshiping before God. So to try to limit this somehow to saying this is just private worship, it's okay privately to worship God with an instrument, but not publicly. And David could do it because... Uh, you know, he he had some sort of exception clause that he was able to do it, but nobody else from 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 any other tribe except Levi. You know, David was the only one who was able to do that, um, who was not a member of the tribe of Levi. All of this is just, I, I mean, I, I we kept using keep using the word special pleading, but that's what this is because you have to just keep saying, well, that was an exception, that was an exception, that was an exception, that was an exception, and then finally you're like, wait a minute, why are we calling these exceptions? With this just seems to be the norm. And so let me give you another example of this. Um, and by the way, David uses many instruments in the Psalms that are never explicitly or specifically commanded or given any type of explicit divine approval. Well, another example, I want to interject this because you were bringing back so many memories of so many sermons that I gave on this very subject. And I never would say, well, David was an exception to the rule. I would look back at, what is that, in Second Chronicles 29, where it says that, that these were instruments that God authorized. And I would my argument was, is, well, David could do this because David was inspired. And whenever you're inspired, well, then you're acting by God's authority. So therefore, David was inspired to do what he did and never violated any principle whatsoever, which is just really special pleading with extra steps, if you think about it. Well, yeah, and, and I'm going to give an example of, of just how far that, that can be taken. Um, what I'm about to say, I'm about to bring up someone, and I, I don't do this very often because I try to make sure that I'm very respectful of people when I bring them up, but um, I had written an article. This was back in 2015 when I changed, and I wrote a, a paper on why I changed, and one of my reasons was just talking about how God uh, was not specific when it came to instrumental music as a general rule, and that there are many times when Christians just pick up an instrument, or, or excuse me, not Christians, but people under the Old Testament just picked up an instrument and started praising God, and they were clearly accepted by God. And one of the examples I used was very early on in the Bible, and that's Exodus 15, 20 of Miriam, who she picked up a timbrel and worshiped with, uh, with, with all of her females, and they were just going to town and praising God with their instrumental music. There's no instruction anywhere where God commanded her, or told her to do this. Um, you know, I, I used to argue, well, it says that she was a prophetess. And so kind of like what you just argued, Lee, just as David was inspired, Miriam being a prophetess, like that just gave her authority to do so. But once we argue that way, we abandon the whole hermeneutic of command, example, necessary inference, because Miriam didn't have a command, example, or necessary inference to play the, the, the timbrel. She just picked it up and started doing it. And so this is such a powerful example that some of those who oppose instrumental music completely dismiss this instance of Miriam by claiming that this example of instrumental music was not authorized. This is interesting. So in, in 2015, I wrote a paper about why I changed my view on this issue, and I brought this example up in my paper. And someone by the name of Dr. Kevin Moore, now we're, this is really getting confusing because we got three Kevins here. We got Kevin 2012, <laughs> we got Kevin 2021, and then we have a completely different Kevin. Uh, Dr. Kevin Moore, he's a professor at Fried Hardeman University. And when I wrote this paper, it started going around some students uh, among Fried Hardeman. People really started having questions. 
people knew I had participated in this debate a few years prior. And so when they saw that I had changed my mind, this paper, it didn't go viral by any stretch of the imagination, but I guess within the churches of Christ, it went somewhat viral. People started reading it, bringing it to their professors and teachers uh, on different schools. They did the same thing with where I graduated from. They started having special classes um, trying to, uh, to basically debunk what I now believe. And so Dr. Kevin Moore wrote a response and a alleged refutation to my paper about why I changed. And this is what he said on Exodus chapter uh, 15. Quote, the biblical text alluded to here, talking about Exodus 15, 20 and Miriam, simply describes what Miriam and other women were doing without saying anything about the Lord's alleged acceptance of it. Whether or not God actually approved the timbrels and dancing, the author has merely submitted his subjective opinion as though it were a proven fact. There is the question of where this kind of celebrating originated from, seeing that instruments and dancing had a long history in secular and pagan festivities and Miriam had spent her entire life under the influence of the pagan Egyptians. The premise drawn from Exodus 15 is unfounded, end quote. What's your take on first hearing that, Lee? Well, my first take on hearing that is, is it almost seems like the pot calling the kettle black because the accusation is, is that you're taking a position on a passage that you're just, you're just assuming that that's what it says, And then that is somehow proven by making an assumption about instruments and dancing in secular and pagan festivals. And that must have been what influenced Miriam to do it. And it also seems as though there's an allusion to what Miriam engaged in in her worship after the horse and the rider was drowned in the sea, that that was somehow unwarranted and unauthorized and by implication, therefore, sinful. That seems to be the natural end to that particular logical thread if you pull on it hard enough. At least that's how I take it. That may not be how it's intended to be perceived, but it really comes across that way. Yeah, and and you know, I I'm glad at least Dr. Kevin Moore here acknowledges that there's times people do things in the Old Testament and sometimes things even attributed to God that actually are not true and if, if I'm going to have an issue with the text, it's going to be the genocides. It's not going to be Miriam worshiping God with a temporal, you know? And, and, yeah. and, I th- and I think that when you look at the, the totality of context here, my question is, okay, is there any reason to believe that what Miriam did was wrong within context? That, that's my first question. When I study Exodus 15, when I read Exodus 15, is there any reason to believe that this example of Miriam worshiping God as a prophetess is there any reason to believe what she did was sinful? And the answer, of course, is no. But then I would ask a, a wider question, or, or, or at least a more applicable question, and that is, is there anything in the narrative arc of Scripture of the Old Testament that would have me to believe what Miriam did by taking up a timbrel and worshiping God was wrong? And, and of course, my answer would be no. And, and then I would say, well, is there anything with the nature of God or any reason for me to question what Miriam's doing here is sinful? The answer is no, unless, unless I have a bias that believes instrumental music is sinful and that Exodus 15, 20 would disprove my conclusion. Therefore, I have to somehow dismiss what we see going on in Exodus chapter 15. Now, for those listening, I hope we're not losing you because the point that I'm making here is not, I believe Exodus 15, 20 is the Bible verse that allows people to use instrumental music. My point is specifically in regard to the idea that in the Old Testament, God always gave explicit commands when to use instrumental music, and he did not do that with Miriam. So either we have to say that hermeneutic is incorrect, and that conclusion's wrong, and that there are obvious times in Scripture where people did use instrumental music without God giving a command, and it was accepted and approved by God, or we have to do what Dr. Kevin Moore is doing and saying, well, this goes against my preconceived idea, and so therefore I'm going to say Exodus 15 is wrong, and that what Miriam is doing is wrong. And that's exactly what he uh, implied in his article. So I believe that, look, don't take my word for it. Read Exodus chapter 15. And I think that this is a clear example of of someone, and, and I'm careful, I'm not doubting Dr. Moore's intent or anything like that, but I believe this is a clear example of someone 
who is instead of allowing Exodus 15 to help create our hermeneutic on musical praise to God under the Old Testament, I believe Dr. Moore has done the opposite. I believe he's allowing his preconceived hermeneutic to explain Exodus 15 instead of allowing Exodus 15 to create his hermeneutic. And, and that's that's more special pleading, brother. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, at a very high level at that point, because um, you know, I, I don't I have not met he he's the only one I've ever met, by the way, who's argued that. So I'm not saying that people who uh, believe initial music or believe that initial music is wrong believe that Exodus 15 uh, is something that Miriam was was in sin for doing. I, I, he's the only individual I've ever met who has specifically put it that way. But I think it shows the severity of the conclusion in, in, of his position if he comes away saying what Miriam did was perfectly acceptable because in essence he would be giving away the argument or giving up the argument that in order to use an instrumental music, God always had to command it because that's just not the case if Exodus 15 is a, is a valid example of Old Testament worship. And I believe, of course, that it is. I also have looked historically, and I don't know of anyone who ever believed what Miriam did in, in taking up her timbrel and worshiping was wrong or sinful. Um, so... To say that God has always regulated instrumental music by specifying the types of instruments and who can play them, I just think all that's demonstrably false. I think that we can look to David. I think we can look to Miriam. I think we can look to passages like 2 Samuel 6, 5 that talk about the whole house of Israel playing all sorts of instruments before God, not just these specific instruments like trumpets and those types of things, or not just the house of Levi, Levi but all of the tribe of, of Israel playing these instrumental music. So this whole hermeneutic of trying to get really specific and tighten things up in the Old Testament of saying that every instrument and every person who played an instrument had to somehow be accounted for with the book, chapter, and verse, that's just not there. You just don't see that in the Old Testament. Nope, you surely don't. Well, let's see what 2012 Kevin has to uh, go on to share with us. The Bible teaches that the Old Covenant was just a shadow. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 1. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. It was just a shadow, but the New Testament, the New Covenant, that is the substance. That is what we are under, and that is where we must go to. So let's look at component number 5. God has regulated only both yeah, let's go, music. Let's go ahead and stop there. Yeah, let's stop there. Yeah. So you got really fired up on that one. The <laughs> idea of the shadow and the type that God has nailed this to the cross, that instrumental music was a part of that old covenant nailed to the cross. That's also a point that I would make that just like um, sacrifices were nailed to the cross, just like incense was nailed to the cross, all of those ritualistic components of Old Testament worship was taken, taken out of the way and nailed to the cross and instrumental music is included in that cohort. So what would your response be to that now in 2021? Yeah, so I'll, I'll make a response to this, and then let's wrap this up and maybe do, uh, 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 since we're already at, I think, over an hour getting close to it, and then we can continue on in the next episode if that's cool with you. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so that because I don't want these to be too long for people, but um, but yeah. So because because we're really kind of getting into the good stuff now, I feel, and so I want to have plenty of time to do that, and so we can just dedicate the the next episode to that. But so we'll end, we'll end it on this argument, and that is this idea of, of the the shadow, the type and shadow, you know, versus reality and those types of things, and so. God nailed it to the cross, and as I said in the in the debate, that's a nail in a sure place, man. I spoke passionately <laughs> about that. Good gracious. So um, these are, are just assertions on my part. Um, I, I have to admit, and I have to be honest, these are assertions. So within the context of Colossians, where Paul is talking about how, how, how Christ nailed something to the cross— I just want to go ahead and say, I don't think Christ nailed instrumental music to the cross. I don't think that's what was was going on in the mind of Christ when he was sitting there hanging there saying, okay, I'm doing this for you guys, and I'm about to nail instrumental music to the cross, and then after this, you can't use instrumental music anymore. <laughs> um, so what is actually taking place here in Colossians? You noticed I really didn't give much 
I really didn't give give much evidence at all. I, I just made this statement of, oh, this is just a type in shadow. Um, there's nothing, and let me make this clear, there is nothing in the Old or New Testament that says anything about instrumental music being a type or shadow. Never says it in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, there is nothing that says instrumental music was some type of shadow. You don't see that anywhere. And so that in and of itself is enough to, to show why this, this argument is nothing more than a false assertion. But let's even take it further than that. When you look at Colossians 2, 14 and 15, Paul's talking about Jesus nailing our sins and the condemnation of the law to the cross. That's what he's talking about. How do I know that? Because that's what it explicitly says. In verse 14 of Colossians 2, Paul, Paul says, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He has set aside nailing it to the cross. Does that sound like instrumental music in worship to God? <laughs> Does, was instrumental music in worship to God a record of debt that stood against us with legal demands? No, that has nothing to do contextually with instrumental music. It's not even, ta- it's, it's not even talking about the totality of the Old Testament. It's, it's talking about God through Jesus nailing those legal requirements to the cross. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. No longer are we going to have to worry about the law for righteousness because Jesus is our righteousness. So, no, he's not talking about nailing instrumental music to the cross. Um, in fact, within context, Paul continues to go on to talk about people who are trying to take away their freedom. He, on the very next verse, says this. He says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Since you died with Christ to the elementary uh, spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish, are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So Paul will continue to go on to fight this uh, this ascetic you know, idea that uh, you have to have all of these rules, and he probably quotes. He does. He does quote someone that do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This idea of what I call the do not brethren, who were going around telling people you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And Paul's whole point here is don't let people judge you in these matters. No one has a right to enforce the law on you anymore. But by that same token, we don't have the right to to enforce the traditions of men on one another either. And so the, the the whole idea of canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, that's what Jesus nailed to the cross, not instrumental music. So while the type and shadow, while that may preach and, and, and I can be fiery and passionate about it and make it sound really good, and I was very sincere, there just wasn't anything to that argument. That was nothing more than an assertion. The Bible never talks about instrumental music anywhere being a type or shadow. Well, and it's amazing how whenever you acquire a deeper appreciation of context, how much more clear that becomes whenever those lenses are refreshed. It it really is incredible how much we miss, even in our zeal and even in our desire to promote what we believe 100% to be the truth. Because, I mean, in 2012, brother, you weren't going up there because you wanted to condemn everybody. You believe that this was true and you were passionate about it because you wanted to save the souls of others. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you weren't, you know, getting some sort of satisfaction from being so right and so righteous. You know, you weren't doing it for that reason. This wasn't an effort to stroke your ego. And for those that that still hold to this idea that instrumental music is sinful and they use a similar line of reasoning that you used in 2012, it's from a place of sincerity. And whenever I preach on this, I was sincere. 
I was absolutely sincere. And I was coming out of, you know, my Pentecostal background where I was the church drummer for almost a decade. So, you know, my family made up the church band in the church that I went to. My dad (laughs) played the piano. My grandmother played the guitar. My mother played the bass. My brother played the guitar. I played the drums. So it's, you know, I'm coming from that. And for me to do a complete 180 on that perspective and to espouse so much of the same things that you were saying in this debate, you were sincere. I'm sincere. And we don't want to, by any means, have anyone misunderstand this. We're not saying that people that that still believe that instrumental music in worship to God is a sin. We're not saying that those people are not sincere. We're not saying that those people are are wicked in their mindset. We just believe that the attitude, well, not even the attitude, for some definitely the attitude displayed is, is not Christ-like, but the argumentation and the facts that are drawn from to make that case are not really facts. There's a lot of special pleading that takes place to make this case, and the context of Scripture is largely ignored. So before we wrap this up, because I know you said you wanted to wrap this up, we we really didn't know how long this would go by bringing in the audio from that debate and then remarking on it and going back and forth. So we are going to go ahead and split this up into, into two episodes, and we'll continue with, with next week's episode. But is there anything that you want to add to this before we go ahead and wrap this up? No, if, if people are listening to this and they're thinking, well, Kevin didn't address this or Lee didn't address this, we're, we're going to address everything <laughs> as we go throughout because we're, we're going to do one more episode to finish up the debate speech here. And then also we're going to do one more episode after that covering some frequently asked questions as well as the history among early Christians and instrumental music and the reformers as well, and talk about how that has been misrepresented, highly misrepresented. And so we're going to get into all sorts of good stuff. So if we haven't covered what you're wanting us to cover, I can almost tell you to rest assured that we will. Yeah, it's going to happen. And if there is anything that we don't cover or any points that we don't address and it really weighs on you and you want it to be addressed, check out the show notes. We have an email address. Drop us an email and let us know what those points are that you would like for us to engage in in a future Q&A episode. Or maybe if it's a meaty enough concept, we'll apply it an entire episode to it. So we want to thank you guys so much. We appreciate all of you, Kevin. It is so good to have you back, man. You have been sorely, sorely missed brother, sorely missed. So we'll go ahead and wrap this up now. Thank you all for listening. We love all of you. Please give us that five-star rating on iTunes or whatever the platform is that you utilize to listen to this podcast on. Share it with your friends and neighbors. We are growing every month. We are getting more and more listeners, and it's because you guys are telling people about it and you're getting something out of it. So thank you all so much. Give us your feedback. Drop us an email. Let us know how we can help you. And we just want to say you all are such an encouragement to us. We thank you all very much, and we wish you all a good night.